I hold the Guinness Book of World Records for having worked for the worst bosses who've ever set foot on this planet. So I challenge anyone to come up with worse bosses than me. Um, one of them was an unlock moment for me when I was working at a TV network. I won't mention which one, but it has a C, a B, and an S in its name. Um, so I was sitting at my desk and my crazy boss's office door flew open and I felt something whip by my head and my boss had thrown a box of pens at me because they were not the ones that she wanted. She wanted the, the fine point and these were the medium point. So instead of just calmly saying, Todd, these are the wrong pens, she lost her mind, started screaming at me. If you can't even order pens right, you better, well, you better start looking for another job. And this was in front of all of my colleagues, all of my peers. So that, and that was just a Tuesday, you know, that was just like a normal day at work. I started saying to myself, is this what work is like? Is it just being, you know, working for psychotic, abusive bosses? And then years later, when I discovered management leadership books, I realized that managing and leading was both an art and a science that could be learned, that you need coaching. So what's interesting is as horrible as it was and as torturous as it was, it is I wouldn't be doing what I do today and I wouldn't be where I am today without every experience, good and bad, that I ever had. If any one of those bosses had taken me under their wing and mentored me and showed me the ropes and introduced me, who knows? I could have been Steven Spielberg. Like, like you literally don't know. So, but I wouldn't be teaching at two universities. I, you know, I wouldn't be doing any of the things I'm doing today. So you can't undo the past and you can't predict what would have happened. And tell me about the dedication in your book. Well, my book is dedicated first to my wife, who is my muse and my greatest source of amusement. Secondly, it's dedicated to my parents, without whom I wouldn't be the person I am. And thirdly, to all the horrible bosses I've had throughout my career, without whom the rest of my career would not have been possible. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. We're here for some more master leadership and coaching insight. Todd Churches is the CEO and co-founder of Big Blue Gumball, a New York-based consulting firm specializing in leadership development and executive coaching, where in his words, training is entertaining. He's a member of Marshall Goldsmith's MG100 Coaches, a three-time award-winning adjunct professor of leadership at NYU, a lecturer on leadership at Columbia University, a TEDx speaker, and the author of the groundbreaking book, Visual Leadership, Leveraging the Power of Visual Thinking, in Leadership and in Life, published back in 2020. 
A pioneering thought leader in the fields of visual leadership and visual coaching, Todd was one of eight global finalists for the 2021 Thinkers 50 Distinguished Achievement Award in Leadership and is currently ranked by Thinkers 360 as one of the top 50 global thought leaders and influences in the fields of leadership, management and design thinking, as well as ranked 44 on the Leadership Power List 200. Todd's book, Visual Leadership, was named by Soundview Executive Book Summaries as one of the best business books of 2022. I can't wait to hear more about his personal path and leadership lessons and, of course, the unlock moments of remarkable clarity he experienced along the way. Todd Churches, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Gary, thank you for having me. It's great. I know you've had many of my MG100 coaches, colleagues on, so it's an honor to be with you today. It was. Thank you so much for accepting the invitation. Now, I know we share something of an eclectic approach to career progression. Where do we need to start in your journey to understand where you are today? Well, I opened, with my TED, I opened my TED Talk on the power of visual thinking, talking about how when I was a kid, when I was around five years old, people would say, Todd, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would say, Superman. And say, all right, well, what if you can't be Superman? What's your backup plan? And I thought about it and I said, all right, Batman. So those are my only two career um, aspirations and, and opportunities I had at that time. And I realized as I grew older that uh, those jobs were taken. But the next best thing was to pursue a career in the television industry. So even though I was an extreme introvert, I always say I'm a three B's guy, a back of the room, behind the scenes bookworm by nature. So that is me. Always a big reader, a big TV watcher, never one to be in front of the room, always behind the scenes. And then here I am today doing TEDx talks and teaching at two universities. And so I have a lot of that imposter syndrome going on. As I say, who is this guy who used to be uh, uh, quietly hiding in the back of the room, trying not to be noticed? Fantastic. And tell us about your connection into uh, Hollywood. Sure. Well, I started my career, I got my bachelor's degree in English literature, so I, with a co concentration in Shakespeare and poetry. And my father said, well, poetry, what are you going to do? Sit under a tree and just write, you know, rhyme all day? It's like, um, interestingly, I apply the humanities and literature to my coaching practice in many ways. In fact, in my book, I sprinkle in uh, references both to Shakespeare and Walt Whitman, as well as Seinfeld and baseball. So my my range of interests uh, from television to literature, I apply them to the world of coaching. So I, I haven't left my, my roots behind. I've just uh, applied them in, in a different way. So, um, but I started out working in, so I got my, my bachelor's degree in English literature, my master's in communication, and my first job out of college was working for Ogilvy and Mather Advertising in New York. And I really wanted to get a creative job or an account exec type of job, but the only thing they hired me for was a media planner job which was great experience. And Ogilvy was one of the top ad agencies in the world, but it was very much a numbers crunching kind of job and uh, doing calculations. And um, it was so not me. So it was a great experience. And after a year of doing that, um, I got my one week of vacation. I went out to LA to visit my college roommate and I saw that Hollywood sign and I fell in love. And uh, even though I was introverted and shy and scared of taking risks and change, um, I went back home, gave my two weeks notice, told my parents I'm moving to LA. And they were like, you're doing what? Um, and I went out there with no connections and no contacts and no money. Um, and I got an apartment with my college roommate. And little by little, I got a few entry-level jobs, temporary jobs. So I started to build up my resume and my network and my experiences while working nights as a bouncer in a nightclub, which is something I don't always mention. I'm six foot four. Um, so I'm, I'm tall. I don't know what that translates into in the UK, but I'm six four. And um, so they say, can you stand at the door and check? IDs and, and guard the velvet rope. And I said, yes, I think I could do that. 
And what's interesting is that really boosted my confidence and my ability to speak to people. So um, I started to come out of my shell and I ended up with a couple of decent jobs that, uh, that led to better jobs along the way. So uh, that's my origin story of how I got into television in Hollywood. It's really interesting. That you, you made me think when you're talking about that, that first job as a bouncer. My first paid job was as a hospital porter, or I think in the US called a hospital orderly, which I did for the best part of a year. And I still think that that was one of the places where I learned to talk to people more than any other job that I've ever gone to do after that. Because as a hospital orderly, you are the person that the only person that's not actually going to stick a needle into the patient. Um, and so they do talk to you in a different kind of way. So, so yeah. Yeah. So I always say every job, I say that to my students, I say every job is a learning experience. Don't ever look at a, a role as beneath you. Um, just take what you can, give what you can, learn from it. And it's a stepping stone to something better. And I always say to my students, I do a lot of work around, we'll talk about, about visual imagery and metaphor. And when we talk about a career path, it kind of implies like it's like stepping stones laid out in a park that are laid out for us. I said, my career has been a career roller coaster of ups and downs, twists and turns, exhilarating highs and terrifying plummets. So um, there was no path. I, it was like going through the tunnel of darkness. I had no idea where things were going to come out on the other end. But this is where I am today. So when my, when my students say I want to be doing what you're doing, I say flounder around for around 20 years, get fired, get laid off, fail, then let's talk, right? There's your next book sorted. It's very interesting because because your your LA career covered comedy and, and drama, I know, and I'm interested in how that translated to your perspective on leadership in years years to come. Yeah, well, one of the things I talk about is the the common link between my English literature major, my years in Hollywood, and my coaching is the, uh, storytelling. Right? Um, uh, to my coaching clients, I say you are the hero of your life story. Like, so you're you're creating the movie, and I say, and you hold the pen. Right? So. There are in stories, there are stories have beginnings, middles, and ends. There are villains, victims, and heroes. There's a quest or a journey. There are barriers and obstacles that stand in your way. There's a resolution. There are lessons learned. That applies to coaching just as well as it does to a movie script or a TV series, right? So, um, so you know, just the metaphor changes and the context changes, but we're all, it's all about story. So that's like one of the recurring themes from my early childhood through doing a TED Talk to coaching people. And what was your early experience of management styles when you were out in, in Hollywood? Uh, well, it was overwhelmingly negative. I hold the Guinness Book of World Records for having worked for the worst bosses who have ever set foot on this planet. So I challenge anyone to come up with worse bosses than me. Um, one of them was an unlock moment for me when I was working at a TV network. I won't mention which one, but it has a C, a B, and an S in its name. Um, so I was sitting at my desk and my crazy boss's office door flew open and I felt something whipped by my head and my boss had thrown a box of pens at me because they were not the ones that she wanted. She wanted the, the fine point and these were the medium point. So instead of just calmly saying, Todd, these are the wrong pens, she lost her mind, started screaming at me. If you can't even order pens right, you better, well, you better start looking for another job. And this was in front of all of my colleagues, all of my peers. Um, and, uh, so that, and that was just a Tuesday. You know, That was just like a normal day at work. And I started saying to myself, is this what work is like is just being, you know, working for psychotic, abusive bosses. And then years later, when I discovered management leadership books, I realized that managing and leading was both an art and a science that could be learned, that you need coaching. Because most people manage the way they were managed, right? Just as a lot of people parent the way they were parented. Um, and you either say one of two things, you'll either say, I would never do this to someone else because I know what it's like, or you would take the good things. But my boss, that crazy boss, I went into her office one day before having a nervous breakdown. And I said to her, what can I do? How can we work better together? 
And she basically said to me, quit whining like a little, I'm not going to say what she called me, just get back to work. She said, when I had your job, I was treated like crap. And now I didn't say crap, but I'm, I'm watering it down. And, and now it's your turn. And if you don't like it, I can replace you tomorrow. So it's like, that was my experience of managing. Years later, when I finally became a manager, I tried to be more sympathetic, empathetic. And, um, but still, managing to me was just telling people what to do and how to do it, because that's what everyone always did to me. I didn't realize that you, know, you could learn how to do it better. And you get you know, the whole carrot and the stick approach. I didn't realize at the time that you, know, um, you, know, it's, you get more and you, you get willing cooperation and commitment uh, using positivity versus compliance and, uh, and people doing things because they want to, not because they have to. So um, you learn the hard way, but I finally figured that out you know, years later. It's really interesting. And I think that that will resonate with so many people that you know, lots and lots of people, their first experience of being managed by other people was in a very certain style of management, not necessarily objects thrown at them, but certainly a kind of top-down boss style tell mode of leadership. I remember um, quite late in my career, I, I took on a role where I was taking on a, a team and not an inexperienced team, a team that, that had you know, many years of experience. And I remember in week one, one of the team members came up to me and said, I'm really sorry, I was five minutes late this morning, but don't worry, I will stay five minutes later at the end of the day to make up for it. And I was like, I kind of think that you're old enough and mature enough to figure out how to work out your own time management to the level of the five minutes. And of course, it told me something about the management style that they'd been managed under, that they felt like they were almost like on a production line and five minutes counted more than the output. And, and it really struck me, you know, that, that was not in, I wasn't in 1984, you know, uh, Wall Street investment banker kind of land. I was in 20, 20 something kind of management models. Um, and it's not obvious. It's not as obvious as you think it would be to leaders that the best thing to do is to get the best out of their people, you know, to, to be supportive and, and grow them and develop them and servant leadership as Gary Ridge you know, uh, famously talks about, it's a very different management style. But there are industries today that are like that. Yeah, so many people, you know, I, I, I studied Frederick W. Taylor's Taylorism, um, you know, going back to when he wrote Principles of Scientific Management in 1911, when he was managing people but with a stopwatch and a, and, a, and a clipboard, right, tracking how long it took people to do various tasks. And we do see that today in a lot of places like McDonald's, Amazon, places that FedEx, you know, where it's all about efficiency and it's, and people are almost cogs in the machine or robots, um, human versions of robots. But like with the example you gave about, you know, making up the five minutes at the end of the day that I had so many bosses like that. One, one boss in particular, um, she went off to go, we had a big presentation due the next day or two days later. She went off to play golf at like three in the afternoon. I stayed there to finish up her report for her. And I was there till one in the morning. I was literally, the lights were off. The cleaning people had come and gone. I was still there. And because I was there till one in the morning, I left her a note. I left her everything on her desk. I said, this is all done. Check it. I won't be able to be in at nine tomorrow because I have something I need to do that I didn't get to do today because I sit work so late. But I'll be around 10, in around 10. But if you need me, just call me. And what did she do? She ripped me apart for being an hour late. Instead of being appreciative that I stayed till one in the morning, and recognizing, thank you so much. You enabled me to play golf. You did an amazing job. All she was, she was so hung up on the fact that I was not at my desk at nine o'clock that nothing else mattered. Now, when that's your management priority, how willing is that person going to be the next time around to stay till one in the morning and put in that d discretionary effort and feel engaged and feel motivated? So, 
know, that's management, not leadership. In fact, it's not even management. I don't know what you'd call it, but you know, but that's what people have control over. And then we're talking about, you know, managing and leading in today's post-pandemic hybrid world. So many people are ordering people back to the office so they could see what time they come in and what time they leave and stand over there and micromanage them. You know, but that's not building trust. That's not leadership. That's not empowering people. So it's, uh, that's one of the biggest challenges out there right now. Do you wish when you look back that you hadn't had that experience of being managed in that way? Or do you feel that you got something from it, even though it was a very negative experience? You know, it's like kind of like uh, Robert Frost, the road not taken. You know, we go down a path and we, we can't look back or we, and we can't go back. Cause, uh, so what's interesting is as horrible as it was and as torturous as it was, it is, I wouldn't be doing what I do today and I wouldn't be where I am today without every experience, good and bad, that I ever had. So would I have changed it? I don't know. My career would be very different. I might still be in television. I might be a producer. Like You really don't know. If I had a boss... When I was working for the TV, I worked for Disney, I worked for uh, Columbia Pictures. If any one of those bosses had taken me under their wing and mentored me and showed me the ropes and introduced me, who knows? I could have been Steven Spielberg. Like, like you literally don't know. So, but I wouldn't be teaching at two universities. I, you know, I wouldn't be doing any of the things I'm doing today. So you can't undo the past and you can't predict what would have happened. But that's a great question to envision. It's almost like it's a, the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, right? If you had made other choices, what would be different and what would be diff- better, right? Or worse. And tell me about the dedication in your book. Well, my book is dedicated first to my wife, who is my muse and my greatest source of amusement. Secondly, it's dedicated to my parents, without whom I wouldn't be the person I am. And thirdly, it's dedicated to all the horrible bosses I've had throughout my career, without whom the rest of my career would not have been possible. So they've given, many sto- given me many lessons learned, many stories to tell. And um, all those war stories help to make me, you know, I think it makes you, you know, I'm kidding around, but, you know, seriously, it makes you more empathetic, makes you more compassionate. Um, I try to see things through the lens of my students and my clients in a way that if everything was perfect, I might not otherwise see. So um, I'm very much against bullying bosses because I had so much bullying in my early and my younger and teen years. So, you know, our life experiences shape who we are and how we lead. And that's the idea behind my book, Visual Leadership, and the title and why it's spelled as a single word with a single shared capital L, because who you are and how you lead is inseparable from the lens through which you see the world. And you see the world, our paradigms are created based on our culture, life experiences, upbringing, and everything else, right? So it works in two ways. One, looking backward, who we are and how we lead is based on who, where we came from. And I know you talk a lot about that you know, when you talk about identity and direction, right, in your idea mindset, right? So, and in terms of your future, um, what you see and what you miss has a lot to do with, again, how we see the world and what our, our vision is and what our aspirations are. So um, that's, uh, so I always try to get my coaching clients and my students to try to see things through the lens of positivity and try to pluck out those learning lessons that shape who you are as a person and as a leader. I really love the way you describe that. Now, we're here to talk a little bit about your unlock moment of, of clarity. And, and, and tell, me, tell me what was happening for you in this period of time up to this moment of real pivot in your, in your direction of your career and, and, and priorities. Sure. I've had a few unlock moments. I, I was thinking about them as I was listening to some of your other episodes. There was one I'd like to mention that was right after 9-11. Um, I was out of work. I wasn't dating anyone. New York City was in, I'm from New York, if you can't tell from my accent already. Don't want to, no spoiler alerts here. But uh, New York was a, kind of in a state of depression. 
And I needed something to do because I wasn't working just to get out of the house. And so I ended up taking signing up for a Dale Carnegie public speaking course because public speaking was something that I was terrified of and terrible at. And I thought, that's holding me back in my career. I have nothing but time right now. And I took the risk. I went to a free one-hour sampler evening, and then I signed up for the course. So I went to the first session, and I, was, I, I have a lot of anxiety and panic attacks in social situations, uh, much less now than I did then. But I, so I signed up. I went to session one. I didn't love it. I was very uncomfortable. I was getting a lot of like, so at the break, and I didn't love the instructor. Uh, at the break, I said, that's it. This is not for me. I packed up my bags and my coat, and I went to the elevator, took, took it down to the lobby, and I was standing there. You know, it's one of those crucible moments, like, should I go back or should I leave? If I leave, nothing's going to change. I'll be the same person I was. when I, Or if I go back, I can always leave later, you know? So I'm going to give it one more shot. So I went back up to the whatever floor it was. I think it was the 10th floor. And I peered through that the circular peephole of the room, and they were just about to start. And, I, and that was my, I call it my go in or go home moment. And I went in. And I had to speak, I had to introduce myself. And then I wasn't going to go back for the second week, I forced myself. And then here I am today. So had I gone home that day, um, I don't know what I would have done. But because that led to not only did I improve my public speaking skills and my confidence and my network, but they thought they said, you're so good at this, we'd love to train you to be one of our trainers. Um, so I got certified um, as a trainer, and that launched my public speaking career and my management leadership training and everything I've done since. So that's one of my unlock moments because literally it was standing at the door. So you talk about standing at the door, and sometimes we talk about you know the key to success, right? There's no physical key; it's a metaphor, just like you know unlocking the door or that window of opportunity. These are all metaphors, right? But that's one of my first, uh, as I was thinking about, that's one of my most powerful unlock moments because had I not gone back in, who knows where I'd be or what I would be doing today. I really love that. And I have this great privilege of talking to people like you, you know, the top, top coaches in the world and, and leaders, uh, leadership development people about these moments. And I always know when there's a good one coming, when somebody starts with something like I was walking on the pavement, I was wearing a blue suit, I was at the stoplight, it was raining. And I'm like, that's one. You know, when, when you remember so vividly um, and when you were describing my go in or go home moment, it made me think of another top coach that I had on recently who, who, might, who I think, you know, Carol Kaufman. And the, she described a moment that was synthesized as don't hold back. But the way she talked about it was she said, you would not know me if it wasn't for this moment. And I really liked that. And, and, and what you just described, it was the same. It was. Because I chose to walk through that door on that day, that sparked everything that, that followed. Uh, and that's really exciting, I think. That's really exciting. And that makes, it also makes you think about the times that you made the other decision, but you don't think about that because you don't know what would have happened. So I right? think about the, the, the locked moments, right? The moments that you know, could have been an unlocked moment, but didn't because you went down a different path or made a different choice. So um, for good or bad, you know, sometimes we make choices that don't always work out, but those are, it's, it is almost, I like that you mentioned that, like just from a visual thinking perspective, the imagery is so, it's almost as if I'm watching, as I was talking about it, it was almost as if I was watching a videotape of it, right? Almost like an out-of-body experience. And hopefully other people could picture that as I was describing it, because uh, as I was, I was like reliving it as I was storytelling it. In, 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 in the background, um, I am sketching out the future book called The Unlock Moment, which isn't nowhere near yet a an agent or a publisher. 
Um, but one of the things that I want to write about is the difference between an unlock moment and the unlock moment. An unlock moment being one of many moments of kind of emerging clarity as you go through your journey, all of which useful and kind of additive. The unlock moment, the one where you remember what the weather is and, and all of that. You know, Michael Lybrand, the, the top Gallup coach, um, came on the podcast a couple of weeks after leaving Gallup in October last year. And her unlock moment was her transition also from the media industry actually into, into Gallup. And she was at the stoplight in the rain in a Toyota Camry looking at the Jeep in front of her. On the back of the Jeep, it said, life is good. And she said, mine isn't. And I was like, what, a, what an amazing little, you know, uh, sort of iconic story of a perfect unlock moment, that, that clarity and, and vividness of, of that. Tell me about the dinosaurs. Yeah, well, uh, many years later, in fact, uh, let's see, that was the go in a go home was in January of 2002. So the dinosaur story was in January of 2010, where I was working a great job. I was the head of leadership development for a Wall Street company. Loved my job, loved my boss, loved the culture. Thought I'd be there for 10 or 15 years. And the Wall Street crisis has hit, but it bypassed us. And the company was always, we're not about layoffs. We don't do layoffs here. Well, you know what? They decided to do layoffs because they, you know, I know it was a last resort, so I didn't take it personally, but I was one of the first 25 people ever to be laid off by the company. So, uh, and my boss was, he was actually one of my colleagues at Dale Carnegie. So I met him at Dale Carnegie. So that's another one of those things. Had I not gone in and become a Dale Carnegie trainer, I wouldn't have met Jeff Schwartzman, who ended up becoming a colleague, a friend, client, then my boss, and he had to lay, lay me off, right? So, um, and then now he's my client again, and we're still best friends uh, because of the, the way he handled it with empathy and compassion. But um, yeah, so I was, it was like 10 o'clock in the morning and uh, he said, Todd, we need to talk. And I went into the office, like, what? He said, I have bad news for you. Today's, you know, the company has to lay off around 25 people and you're one of them. So, um, and I was like, what do I do? I was almost paralyzed. It's like, it's like you don't your your brain isn't processing it. Everything's going through your head. It's everything. Um, so anyone who's been laid off or fired, especially without any notice, can relate to the shock that you feel. And I, he said, "Don't even pack your stuff up. Don't take your boxes. Just you know, everyone needs to leave, unfortunately. So it's like, but he said you could come back and get your stuff another time and clean out your desk, which was good because another time I was let go. I got back to my desk and there was an armed security guard standing there as if I was being sent to prison." literally with a gun in his waistband and, and a badge and um, like watching, making sure I didn't take any post-its or, or pens. So, but this was like a full different type of culture of trust and empowerment. So he said, you'll come back, you know, another day this week. So I left. I'm like, All right, what do I do? I just walked out with my bag and do I call my wife? Do I do whatever? And this was, I was working in Midtown Manhattan around 30, not that round, but 37th Street and 7th Avenue. So I just started walking up Broadway and uh, the Museum of Natural History is at, is at 81st Street, and I found myself in front of the Museum of Natural History, and it's free, and I, or actually, I was a member at the time. So I said, I'm just going to go in. It'll just kill some time. So I started walking around Asia and Africa, and like, you know, and I was just, just sitting there, you know, under the big dinosaur, and just the dinosaur put things in perspective, right? It's like, they're extinct. I'm not extinct. This was just a setback, and I'll figure it out, and um. I, there were two career paths at that point to get another type of job like that or to start my own company. And I decided to start, decided to start my own company, Big Blue Gumball. Um, and I went home and I told my wife what happened. She was like, what are you doing home? Because uh, by then it was probably you know, two or three hours later. But it was that walk around the museum and that sitting under the big gigantic brontosaurus that really um, you know, helped me put things in perspective that you know, things are going to be okay. I really like that. 
they're extinct, I'm not. It's going to be right. It's interesting that, that, that the way of firing you, you find more compassionate is the one that doesn't involve a gun. That was also quite interesting for people in this country, in, in the UK, who, are, who it's much more difficult to ask somebody to leave on the same day in this country than in America. And we definitely don't have guns involved in the process. But Yes, yes. Unfortunately, that's why I'm not going to get, go down that path. But yes, that is an issue here. Interesting. Um, and, and Big Blue Gumball, where, where's that come from? It's a metaphor. It's, it represents the world, the earth, the globe. It's like a big blue gumball, however you want to take it. So sometimes people call it the big, a big blue marble, or um, some people say it reminds them of IBM, which was big blue. But uh, big blue gumball was a, uh, my brother and I came up with that many years before when we were brainstorming about another company we, had, we were trying to start. It never happened. And then uh, big blue gumball was born. Um, so all the work we do is around visual imagery and, and, and seeing the world in a colorful way. And it's the metaphor that represents who, who we are and, and how we do what we do. So talk to me about visual leadership, where it came from, and what's the essence of, of that philosophy? Sure. Visual leadership is basically the application of visual thinking and visual communication to the practice of management and leadership. So it comes out of my, as I mentioned earlier, my years of watching television and reading literature and working in the entertainment and advertising and the theme park business. I talk a little bit after television. I worked in the theme park business as a project manager for a number of years. And the idea behind visual leadership, as I mentioned, it's about how you see, how do you get people to see what you're saying, right? And I talk about four ways that we do that. One is through visual imagery, whether it's pictures or objects. Um, the second is uh, using mental models and frameworks. Third is using metaphor and analogy. And four is using storytelling uh, with bonus points for humor if and when appropriate. So those are my four kind of buckets. They are not mutually exclusive. They're used in combination and overlap. But that's the idea be behind it. And my catchphrase is, how do you get people to see what you're saying? Right? How do you get an idea out of your head and into someone else's? How do you get that vision? You know, what is a vision? It's about seeing something in your mind's eye, which I know was coined by Shakespeare and Hamlet when he didn't know, as an English major, right? So he didn't know Hamlet said, I think I see my father in my mind's eye because he didn't know if it was a real ghost, an apparition, or a figment of his imagination. Similarly, we have visions in our mind that are uh, pictures of the future that are different from and better than the current reality. So then it becomes how do we make that vision a reality, but also how do we get that vision out of our head and into other people's heads so we can have a shared vision that we can change the world with. So that's the the essence and the foundation of what visual leadership is all about. And then my book and all my work is around helping people to apply these visual thinking and visual communication techniques to whatever it is that you do. And, and who are your typical clients? Who are the kinds of people you're working with? Where are they in their kind of, you know, whether companies in their journey when it's right to get you to help them to, to think through this stuff? Yeah, I mean, I hate to say, you know, as people say my clients are everyone, but they literally are. Anyone who needs to sell an idea, get an idea out of your head, get other people to see what you're saying. Um, which is really everyone from my students at NYU and Columbia to senior level executives. I'm doing um, a session on visual thinking for a group of 20 CEOs coming up in, uh, in a couple of weeks. So even if you sub, a lot of times people think, oh, visual thinking is about drawing, right? That is one component of it. And I do help people, even who, those like myself who suffer from ICD, which is I can't draw syndrome. I you know, if you could play Pictionary or if you could use play charades and use body language and and you know, if you could draw a straight line, a square, a circle, you could draw enough to get an idea out of your head. But it's very empowering to be able to get up at a flip chart or a whiteboard or grab a napkin and do a napkin sketch and say, this is what I mean. It could be a process. It could be a metaphor. But it's very powerful. And in all my work that I do, I help people to communicate more effectively. So for example, um, 
I know you're a ballroom dancer. I heard that through the grapevine, right? So if I'm talking to you, I might use dance as a metaphor, right? And connecting that to poetry, uh, Yeats had a famous line from his poem, Among School Ch Children, um, how, do you, how, do you, how can we tell the dancer from the dance, right? And I love that. It's like, can you separate the dancer from the dance? Can you separate the art from the artist? Can you separate the leader from how you lead, right? So that's an interesting conversation that, you know, that we could have. And, you know, my mother was a, a tap dancer for many years and did theater. My wife's a performer. So, you know, dance and theater and the arts is a metaphor that we could connect over. So, for example, if I was talking to you, that's a metaphor I might use. Whilst with someone else, I'm a big baseball fan and, and Yankee fan. With someone else, I might use baseball as the metaphor. With someone else, I might use something universal like nature as the metaphor. So with nature, I might say, you know, let's plant the seed for the idea. Let's get to the root of the problem. Let's branch out in new directions. Let's see which ideas bear fruit. The sky's the limit, you know, if we, if we make this successful. So we use metaphorical language to help connect us with our clients, with our, whoever we're talking to. So that's one example how, you know, we might bond over dance with someone else I might connect using another language or another metaphor. You made me think of something, actually, which is one of the greatest book titles I think I've ever come across is a really obscure book written by a, a late ballet teacher, Roger Tully. Um, who was one of the very, very early dancers with Rombert, the, the, the contemporary dance company, um, and a kind of disciple of Nijinsky, actually, um, and Pavlova. And he wrote a book uh, about ballet dance called The Song Sings the Bird. And it was this idea that the dance dances the dancer as opposed to the dancer dances the dance. Um, and, and it's a very evocative thing. And when you were talking about that connection with dance, it, it, that just came to mind. It's very, very interesting. This was resonating with me this weekend. I, I've spent um, a lot of this weekend working with one of my coaching clients who's the CEO of an emerging biotech company and currently uh, going talking to investors about a significant raise. And there's a context in biotech where sometimes the, the things you need to talk about are incredibly complex by the nature of what you do as a, as a business. So how do, you, how do you help leaders to, who are working in very complex spaces, whether it's science or engineering, technology, where, where th they instinctively feel to help somebody to understand what I do, I need to educate them in it to PhD level. How do you get them to be able to translate that into a simple but effective narrative? Yeah, I mean, to me, the key thing is we need to speak the language of our stakeholders. It's like sometimes people say, you know, explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old, right? That type of thing. But you don't, want to, you, want, you don't want to dumb things down or lose the nuance, but you want to simplify complexity. And one of the, 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 the terms out there is, uh, is VUCA. You know, the world is more VUCA than ever. VUCA is it's more volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous than ever, right? Because the world is changing faster than ever. Uh, and now we have chat GPT and AI. That's a whole that, you know, just when you think, think things can get more, you know, complicated, we would just figure out what, you know, what NFTs are and, you know, and other things, right? So how do we keep up with the technology and the language? We need to simplify it and say, it's kind of like this, but it's different in this way, right? Um, real life example, I was coaching a group of pharmaceutical salespeople, and they were not successful in delivering consistent messaging. So I had them draw on flip charts. How would you explain to a client what it is that you do and how you're different from and better than the competition? Because what they were doing was selling really complicated and complex uh, products and services. And one guy said, he drew a picture of a whale, not a great picture, but we could tell it was a whale, eating up goldfish. And he said, 
we are eating up our com competitors in this way. So it's like, we're the whales and they're the goldfish. And the VP said, that's not accurate at all because many of our competitors are bigger than us. He said, it's not like we're whales and they're goldfish. And he thought about it for a second. He said, it's more like they're sharks and we're dolphins. He said, they just bite off the business and swim away with it, leaving their clients bleeding. We're like dolphins. We communicate. We are warm and friendly. We are cuddly. So that became the dolphin became their metaphor. And that became their consistent with their core values. That's how they were going to treat people in a dolphin-like fashion, as opposed to a shark-like fashion, right? So just in, in a half hour, we got to that point of, yes, we need to, the dolphin became the metaphor. Uh, and, and symbol of how they would behave and interact with their clients. And who knows if or when or how long it would have taken to reach that point, if not for that exercise. So that's just one example of how thinking visually and communicating visually and metaphorically, uh, and also storytelling, right? I'm telling you this story about what happened. Now you could picture it and like, wow, that really resonates. And now I get what you're talking about, right? So it, like, it, it's almost very meta because I'm using the techniques that I'm describing that works successfully in a client situation. So I hope that you know, helps as one example um, of, of how to use visuals in a, in a business context. I remember right back at the start of the pandemic, I was actually in a leadership role at the time. And I remember more than ever before in my career, the sense of nobody knows. Nobody knows what's going to happen, not even in three months' time. Nobody knows what's going to happen next week. Nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And we were, as a leadership team, spending a huge amount of our time just trying to figure out some kind of strands of certainty in this incredibly uncertain world. How do you tell stories and shape a narrative when you have no idea? And lots of industries, to some extent, were still kind of there post-pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mentioned VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. I wrote a blog post called The Opposite of VUCA. And the opposite of volatile is calm. The opposite of uncertain is certain. The opposite of complex is simple. And the opposite of amb ambiguous is clear, right? Um, calm, certain, simple, and clear. How can we, as leaders, create, even in the absence of information, because none of us can predict the future, how can you at least create differentiate between what we know and what we don't, what we're certain of and what we're not, right? So I think as a leader, if you just admit, I don't have any of the answers either. And the word together is magical. If you say, let's figure it out together, right? And I was actually telling my students a story about that recently, where if I, growing up as a kid, if I asked my mother, if I asked my father a question, he, he would say, go ask your mother. And if I asked my mother a question, she would say, let's go look it up together. And we go to the little children's encyclopedia, or we'd even jump in the car and drive to the public library, right? That's, my mother should have been a school teacher because she was like that and, and, and she was great at that. Um, but that, I think that's the thing. Leaders need to say to their people, let's figure it out together. None of us has the answers. And that's how you engage people. You empower them. Um, I love the Steve, Steve Jobs quote. Um, we don't hire smart people so we could tell them what to do. We hire smart people so that they could tell us what to do, right? So it's just a mindset shift as a leader to acknowledge this is uncharted territory, right? So, but let's figure it out together. And I think that's you know, a more effective way of leading and, and developing the next generation of leaders as well. In my book, The Idea Mindset, I talk about these four elements. You talked about two of them already, identity, direction, who you are, where you're going, for a future with engagement on authenticity. You love what you're doing. And my personal obsession is about authenticity, you know, knowing and then acting in line with your values and sense of purpose. You talked before about leaders who had a certain way of leading that was not continuous with, with um, engagement and, and, and 
effective growth of your team. Here, you've got things where leaders could kind of go, I should do those things, even though I don't necessarily believe in them, it doesn't feel natural to me. How do you help leaders to find their authenticity in the stories they tell? Yeah, I mean, I always say that people have two thought bubbles over their head at all times. Why should I care? And what's in it for me? Right? Those are the two thought bubbles. So whether you're delivering a presentation or sending someone an email, the, other, the recipient, the reader or the listener is thinking, all right, why should this be of interest? And how will this benefit from me? Right? So I think that's the way we need to frame it, which is a metaphor. And with our leaders, with our coaching clients to say, here's how, here's why you should care. And here's why you should benefit, even if it's a selfish kind of way. Um, another thing is, you know, getting people to share their stories. Like a lot of, I was once doing a workshop and on storytelling uh, for, for senior executives. And one of the CEOs said, I hate storytelling. I'm terrible at storytelling. And someone said, well, why, why do you say that? And he said, well, here's what happened one time. And he told this great story about the time that he told a story and it flopped, right? So everyone was like, do I have to say it or are you going to say it? That was an amazing story. I'm never going to forget it, right? So we put these limits on ourselves and these constraints by saying it's kind of like a growth mindset versus fixed mindset, right? His fixed mindset was, I'm terrible at storytelling because one time he told a story that bombed, and yet he proved to himself and to everyone else that he was good at it. And you know, children tell stories, grandparents tell stories. As humans, we are just wired for visuals and we're wired for stories. So if you could just help people find that within them and help to nurture it, a lot of times it's confidence and it's imposter syndrome. It's not that they don't have the skill, if they don't have the confidence. And the best leaders, as you know, are vulnerable and authentic and they, they speak, you know, they don't act the part of the boss. They reveal who they are and share their stories and their vulnerabilities. And it's a sign of strength, not weakness when you're able to do that. So for a lot of people, they need that handholding. And that's where we come in as coaches to help them recognize that and feel confident. And again, I always say things don't change does not happen overnight, but over time, right? So it's not going to happen in one session. It's not going to happen in one story, but give it time and let's revisit where we are now. I'm very big on helping, um, having people keep a learning journal and write things down so they could look back on that three months, six months from now. And part of my OCD was I started keeping a journal my first day of college and I have not missed a day ever since. So I'm up to year, not to age myself, but I'm up to year 43. I have not missed a single day of writing in my journal ever since. So um, for people who say I don't have the time, it's three to five minutes. You could do it when you wake up, before you go to sleep. So it's just about priorities. But uh, when you get it out of your head and out on paper, it's really interesting to look back and see how much we've all changed over, over time. That's seriously impressive. And do you go back and, and read your early entries or once you've written it, you kind of close the book on it? I do occasionally. In fact, when I wrote my book, it was extremely helpful because I had all the facts, the names of bosses. I had, it really helped me to reconstruct the stories. But um, I don't know if you know here in the US, the, uh, the motion picture uh, writers are on strike, TV and motion picture writers. So in 1988, I was laid off. I was at Columbia Pictures Television and I got laid off because the writers went on strike. And I was talking to my friend uh, who also worked in the industry at that time. And we were like, what months was it? How long did it last? And I took out my diaries from 1988. And there it was, the day I was laid off. And then I was off. I was unemployed for two days. I got a temporary job at Disney. I temped at Disney for eight weeks. So I was able, just reading it in my handwriting. I always suggest handwriting it too. If you type it, it's not the same. But it just flooded back to me. Like I remember writing it. I just put me back into that era. 
But um, that's one example of I just literally just did that two days ago after having dinner with my friend and we were reminiscing. So that's the magic of of keeping a journal is, you know, seeing your, how you've changed and evolved over the years. Plus, as our memory goes, it's just good to, for solving arguments over, you know, what year do we see Flashdance and what theater do we see it in? Common arguments around the dinner table. Um, so for people that are listening to this and they think, I really like this, what's the thing that I can do to start? You know, what what what? Do you give people as a tip coming out of workshop as, as one thing they can do to get started on this journey? Yeah, well, tip number one is not to plug, but is to watch my TED Talk. It's eight minutes called The Power of Visual Thinking. That'll give you some context and my book as well. But I would say start small. You know what they say? You're already doing a lot of these things already. And that's the case with a lot of things, right? It's about awareness and intentionality, right? If you're aware of how often you know this visuals. Marcel Proust, this is the closing line of my TED Talk, he said that the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new lands, but in seeing with new eyes, right? So next time you walk down a street, take a different street, first of all, but if it's the same street, try to notice one thing or five things or 10 things that you would never notice before. With a person that you're talking to, one of your employees, for example, ask them a question you've never asked them before. Notice something about them you've never noticed before. It really is just about awareness. It's about looking and seeing. It's also about listening. We always talk about, um, it's not learning styles, but learning modalities, VARK, V-A-R-K, visual, auditory, reading and writing, and kinesthetic. So when I'm teaching, I always tell people to leverage all four of those learning modalities. But So you want to look, you want to listen, you want to read and write, and you also want to involve touch, feeling, and movement. When you engage all four of those modalities, you're going to see things and absorb things in a new, fresh way. And that is the step, step one. Because then you could start using different metaphors. If there are things that you've always done, say, I always use a baseball analogy. Well, use a soccer analogy or sorry, football for those of you in the UK, right? Um, speak the language of your stakeholders. Try something different. You know what? It's also fun, right? It's fun. It's creative. I have a number of props I keep on my desk that remind me. I don't know if you have the character uh, Curious George over there, but I keep a Curious George doll on my desk to remind me to always be curious and ask why. I have, see this, I have an elephant on my desk that reminds me to not ignore the elephant in the room, right? So, I mean, I could go on for hours just about different metaphors just from characters. But again, it's just thinking in a new, fresh, fun, creative way that helps you to be more effective. But that's why I say start small, start noticing things you hadn't noticed before, and then build from there. I love it. Todd, how can people find out more about you and the work you do? Yeah, so um, I have two websites. One is my company, bigbluegumball.com, but my uh, primary and my newest website is toddchurches.com, where people can find out about my book and watch my TED Talk. And anyone can feel free to uh, link in with me. I, I spent a lot of time on LinkedIn. That's how we first connected. And uh, feel free to just connect with me. Say you saw me on, you listened to me on Gary's show, and, uh, and then we'll continue the conversation on social media. Fantastic. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For world-class leadership development coach and master storyteller, Todd Churches, it was a moment of realization amongst the massive dinosaurs at the American Museum of Natural History that helped him to think really big and start his own leadership development firm. I read a great testimonial recently that simply said, if you have the opportunity to interact with Todd in any way, do it. So please take that advice, reach out and connect with Todd and get a copy of his book, Visual Leadership, Leveraging the Power of Visual Thinking in Leadership and in Life, available on Amazon and all good bookstores. Todd, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Unlock Moment. All right, thank you. That was great. Loved it. 
This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on the Unlock Moment.